I'm Mara. I'm Maya. I'm Marius. And, and this, this is Comicsverse. Dear audience, welcome to what I almost can't believe is the 91st episode of our Comicsverse podcast. I'm your host, Marius Steenkamp. As always, check us out at comicsverse.com for more podcasts like this, interviews, articles, and of course, videos. And today, continuing where we left off the exact same day last year, we will be talking about the mutant metaphor in X-Men comics and Xavier's dream, or to be more specific, about how the metaphor works for a new generation of comic book readers. And nobody on this podcast is even older than 20, so we will be getting into how some of the X-Men classics, such as Giant Size X-Men 1, The Dark Phoenix Saga, and of course, one of my favorites, God Loves Man Kills, uh, affected us as younger readers, but also into like a more general discussion on how we perceive the, the metaphor in X-Men books and how it has evolved over the course of time. But first, let me introduce my wonderful cast members, starting with Mara. Mara goes to Barnard at Columbia, where she studies film and has only recently joined Comicsverse, actually. Mara, how are you? I'm doing well, thank you. Also joining us today will be Maya, who just a few days ago released a great piece on the 13 Reasons Why Netflix show, which was a really personal piece who I think a lot of us were really impressed and touched by. Maya, how are you? Thank you, I'm good. All right, so maybe we'll just start with a quick round where we talk about how each of us got into comics. So what's your story of how you got into reading comic books? Well, it's it's kind of weird because I used to read one of the comics that would come out from Cartoon Network that they had in my local library. And from there, just I got really into fables when I was in high school and one of my librarians is really nice and really into comics as well so he would kind of help me figure out what I should read from there based off the stuff that I was interested in. I actually got into it through the movies. Um, my mom did not let me watch a lot of PG-13 movies but she let me see X-Men. Yeah I don't know I was just like I, I was just enthralled and, you know, I thought it was only movies. I was like eight or so at the time. But then I realized, you know, there was a whole there was so much more to this world that I could, you know, consume. So I just went straight to comic books after that. Oh, yes, I, I can emphasize with that because I used to watch a lot of the X-Men and, uh, of course, other Marvel movies with my dad when I was like eight or nine. Uh, and I only got into reading the comic books at around like age 10. But from that point on, I actually started reading the the Spider-Man books at, at the point where they did like the, the reboot of uh, like after the marriage of MJ and Pete. And from that point, I kind of got into the like the broader Marvel universe and started reading the X-Men stuff uh, after Messiah Complex, I believe. Uh, yeah, that's that's why I got into that, which leads me to my, my next question. So... What were your first experiences with like the X-Men comic books or maybe the X-Men in general? Yeah, so kind of like what I was saying, I uh, I saw the movies first. I just saw like, you know, X-Men 1 and I don't know, I just thought it was really amazing. Um, I thought it was really funny and just sort of not like other movies I was allowed to see at that time, uh, like more in a more adult representation of superheroes um, and uh, yeah, I just kind of fell in love from there. It's funny because you mentioned the movies a lot, Maya, and we at my high school 
one of the few clips they showed during surprisingly health class was a clip from the, the second X-Men movie uh, of when the kids were being introduced to school and how different and ostracized they felt because of their powers. So I thought that was really fascinating at the time, but it wasn't really until I, I'd say as early as last year that I hunkered down and started reading all the Golden Age X books and really getting into the lore of the series just because it seemed so intimidating at the time. I totally see that because when I was getting into comic books or specifically X-Men comic books, like the lore uh, and the universe is really deep and impressive, I would say. But it's also intimidating for people who just came from like reading uh, or from seeing some of the movies. So, yeah, I, I can totally emphasize with your story because that's that's what happened for me. I, I saw the first X-Men, X-Men trilogy with my dad and then, yeah, I got into into the comics a bit later. And um, I actually got into reading most of the classics like five years after I started uh, first reading X-Men comics. So, I mean, I started get, being a fan like more and more. And, you know, I've been talking to many X-Men enthusiasts in my time in Comicsverse, and I would say most of them have in common is that they have a very personal connection to Xavier's dream and to the mutant experience as a metaphor in the comic books. What do these concepts mean to you personally? Like, do you have your own interpretation of them or a personal backstory that you would like to share? I mostly just found them to be profound almost in the way that they were tackling subjects that I hadn't always associated with graphic novels. It's hard because for me, I always moved around a lot when I was younger. So I wasn't really around to meet a lot of kids my own age. So I could really identify with the feeling of being outside of a system, even though I would have been very much so stereotypically in it if I hadn't moved as much as I had. And it's fun to kind of like read these types of things and see characters struggle with identity issues and, you know, just very much so like real things that you would otherwise think that they'd be too scared to tackle almost. That makes sense. Right. Um, I'm someone who's pretty active in the political circles, um, mostly online, um, especially after the election, uh, talking about, you know, things we can do, um, ways to organize. And I feel like it's really important to have a work of literature or work of media to connect to, um, oftentimes to make metaphors. So I feel like it's it's nice having the X-Men there as a sort of like representation of a fight for equality and one that has a lot of different uh a lot of different sides to it and a lot of nuance in the way that they fight for it like you know a lot of people have different opinions about whether they want you know equality or equity or you know just like separatism for mutants and humans oh no yeah i totally agree because um I think for me, it was kind of the other way around. I, uh, if that makes sense, I really start. I mean, I started reading the X-Men comics when I was pretty young. And it's not like you're completely politically aware at that age, like at age 10 or 11. So uh, I think I just gradually started realizing how the metaphor works and how powerful the metaphor is. Uh, like after a couple of years when I kind of found my love for the X-Men another time if that makes sense 
And with that newfound love for X-Men comics and the mutant metaphor came, what I would say is like my development is like in terms of political opinions. So I, I can totally emphasize with, with your stories. And it's uh, also a metaphor that means a lot to me like in recent times, I would say in the last couple of years. Uh, and there's, I, for me, there's always a lot of uh, ways you can interpret events in the comic books to mean certain things in the in the real world and um a lot of ways the metaphor works differently so even now after the trump election but we'll get into that later uh i feel like the what the metaphor meant to me has kind of evolved and that's i think that's great and that's pretty unique in comic books so what was your first contact with giant size x-men one and what was like your very first impression so I actually had to read Giant Sized X-Men number one for a class I'm taking this semester at school. And my first impression was when the character of Colossus gets introduced, my first impression was when I read that he was from the Soviet Union, all I could think of was the Captain Planet character who's also from the Soviet Union just feeling this weird like disconnect. Like I have no idea like that's so weird to think that this was a thing at one point and that I obviously don't really understand just because again it's this isn't part of my personal history and it just reminded me of like just like a weird story that is a little bit kind of in its time so it's kind of like a weird archaeological find reading it now if that makes sense. So yeah, I I think my, I mean my my first reaction to Giants as X Men one was kind of similar because I had to I never actually got around to reading it until we prepared for some of I think it was even last year's podcast but I'm not sure uh, I did read it first for for some comics verse podcast I'm pretty I'm pretty certain I would agree that some of the scenes are really like like really in that time i guess and only makes sense if interpreted in that historical context but we can get into that later more uh but yeah for me it was definitely interesting seeing the way these iconic characters which i mean that's one of the most iconic x-men teams that's being introduced in that issue and uh it was just interesting for me as someone who had always known these characters but never really seen where they come from and where they started off as x-men it was interesting going back and seeing that. What do you think sets this book apart, like in your opinion, from other books? And why do you think that the metaphor works that well in this specific issue? It's weird because I remember when I was first reading it and, you know, refreshing my memory for the podcast that I didn't understand why a lot of the people who would eventually come and join the team for the X-Men, like especially Storm, I, I I genuinely just didn't understand why she would give up a life of being a goddess to be on a mutant team. Maybe it's just like, oh, I would I would stay as a goddess. Like, don't, I'm not even gonna I'm not even gonna pretend. But um, I guess the big thing that sets this book apart from what had come before it was the again, like as you said, the iconic team. Though I don't really remember reading it and seeing much of the metaphor here because it to me still plays out like any stereotypical superhero comic would like they go and save the team and they do it quite well but this time with more of an international bend giving more representation 
before, like when before it was predominantly uh, white males plus gene. Yeah, basically. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I agree. I think that's something we can definitely criticize about the comic that, I mean, for me, it does kind of meet what the, the metaphor should do in a better way than comics before did, if that makes sense. But still, I mean, it gets, gets into a lot of uh, genre-specific tropes. So, I mean, that's, that's something we can, like, in hindsight, definitely criticize. And another thing we can get into is, like, the historical context, because um, Giant Size X-Men features a lot of characters that the U.S. had and has, uh, well... I want to say difficult political re relations with such as, for instance, Colossus from Soviet Russia. Um, so what's like our millennial take on the political climate back then and how it's reflected in giant size X-Men one. Uh, this actually weirdly reminds me of the movie Annie, the musical. So when it was made, um, At that time, the Irish were like getting a lot of slack for being, you know, they were stereotyped as being uh, in America, at least like poor immigrants, you know, orphans, a lot of them. So the movie is, you know, about orphans, about her like rising out of this sort of oppression. And then they made um, the new the newer Annie and she's black in that one, because now like now those are the people who, you know, most people unfortunately have the stereotype of like they have the stereotype of them being like lazy or poor or things like that. So it reminds me of how like um, of how characters change with the metaphor. Like an Irish Annie today wouldn't make much sense. Um, and the same thing with giant size, like Colossus. Now we see him as a character. It doesn't seem like he's this radical character. It seems like, you know, he's just a guy on the team. Whereas maybe we'll see like black Panther is more radical or storm. So, yeah, so I like um, I like how the political climate shapes the mutant metaphor, but it still stays as a metaphor for, like, you know, international uh, harmony. Yeah, um, you know, yeah, I, I completely agree with you there. My biggest criticism for this is, or, or just, like, the idea of the political climate. Um, I do really like how they incorporate uh, Soviet Russia, almost sort of like having a pseudo-harmony going on between the U.S. and then all these other like nations that they bring in and kind of like a superpowered UN who can actually do stuff um, and just sort of like trying to get everyone to come together. I guess my biggest problem with it, if it's to really have a problem, I know we're going to go over criticism at some point, is that it's still predominantly written by at this time by white males from America. And so I feel like a lot of the nuances that could have been in the book, and I understand it's like a lot of characters that they're adding in from different areas, and they really wanted to have a global perspective. But it feels a bit, by today's standards, it just feels a bit one-noted. And that, I, I appreciate the inclusion of all these characters, but I, I and they will eventually go deeper. But at, at this point, it just feels like changing the coat, but still the same underneath. Right. I feel like at the time, I would be really like grateful for it. You yeah, know? of course. I guess nowadays I've seen so much more inclusion and so much more nuance. It just seems kind of it just, rudimentary. It, yeah. And I do feel like at some points they will fall back on like a lot of stereotypes. Yes. <laughs> which is which is unfortunate because, um, you know, a lot of these characters, we see them mature and grow with 
the series and the comic franchise and stuff and they become way more nuanced and way more interesting so it is again fun to see what they used to be when they were originally conceived but again it's like having all these other references to pull from it it does appeal a lot shallower shallower than it did back then no i absolutely agree and i think that it's uh well on the on the long term it was a necessary step for marvel to employ not only more diverse characters but only more diverse creators to really get that uh other perspective i guess but yeah i mean as you said standards uh change over time so i mean for the time i think this was uh i don't want to say revolutionary but it was a step forward i would say so would you say that the book seemed dated to you or is there any criticism that you want to add from the millennial perspective as much fun as it is seeing a bunch of like mutants fighting on a living island and it is really fun um again the whole the whole soviet union thing and a lot of the character uh stereotypes that they fall on to me that does seem fairly dated not saying that the story itself is bad but it is good to take it with a grain of salt and recognize that we've come not not much further but we've come further along with our own social criticisms and our own ability to recognize people from different parts of the world and like people of color and gender identities and all that stuff and that while this is a necessary step forward it is one step in a long line agreed and i think that among the books that we're going to talk about today i feel for me as a reader uh, who has like grown up with the 2000 and 2000 uh, 2000s and 2010 stuff uh, i feel like this one was the most dated to me and was like it's almost uh, as you said it's almost like like a relict of sorts not in a bad way necessarily but it's interesting to go back and read this but i mean you can see that it's it's pretty dated and it's been written a bunch of years ago i think it, it's really visible so next off is the infamous Dark Phoenix saga. And again, what was your first contact with the Dark Phoenix saga? And what was your first impression reading it? Right. So I actually, um, like I was saying, I've been introduced to the movies first. Yeah. So I saw um, Last Stand, which everyone else hated. But I think I was a kid and I didn't understand why it was a bad movie. So I loved it. I was like, yes, like Magneto's just like moving a bridge. It was awesome. Um, and so then when I'm going back rereading uh, the comics that they're partially based off on, um, yeah, I definitely liked it more than the movie. I also really like Jean Grey. I've always liked her. Um, not Maybe not particularly in Dark Phoenix Saga, but I really like her. And I also like this idea that this strong female character's strength came from her mind. And also she wasn't particularly sexualized at the time. I think her outfits are relatively tame for the time period compared to other, um, compared to how other women uh, were dressed at this time. So yeah, I don't know. I felt it, for me at least, was a little revolutionary in my um, upbringing, seeing female characters that like, I don't know, their strong suit was either like their power, it was never their mind. And like Jean Grey, like she was just like, you know, her mind is her greatest asset. So that felt really cool to me. Um, yeah, for me, uh, during, I don't remember when, unfortunately, because it was a while ago, but 
during a time when I should have probably been doing something more productive with my life, I had I was looking up some episodes to watch from the original animated series because yeah, you know, just gonna hit up some classic animation and some of the ones that I remember watching were their rendition of the Dark Phoenix Saga and I was like what is this madness? This is so cool. Um, and a few months ago, my when my mom was in town, uh, she gave me some money. She's like, you should go get something from the Strand because you've been a good child. And um, I picked up the full Dark Phoenix Saga complete uh, book set or the paperback copy. And I just read through that during a long car ride. And I, I really like it. I mean, I, I but I also like Chris Claremont's writing. So that definitely affects my opinion of it. Right. I actually got it um, signed by him. Yeah. He was at a, he was at a comic con I was at and um, he looked familiar. I was like, who is this old dude? And uh, yeah. And so, yeah, I I have two copies because I bought an extra to have it, um, to have him sign. But yeah, I was telling him about my feelings about Jean Grey and stuff. And he was like, yeah, that's what we were trying to do. So Oh, but the interesting part is, is that I'm not as much as I do love the story. I think I love more of like the idea behind it than what actually happens. So I think we're going to differ in opinion with what ultimately happens with Jean Grey, because I was not always I'm I'm still like trying to figure out if I like the ending, if that makes sense. Right. I agree. We talked to Chris Kremen about the Dark Phoenix saga a lot on, on like the interview we did almost a year ago now, or exactly a year ago. And I mean, he's really nice. And uh, it was really interesting to see like his motivation, if that makes sense, behind his work. And I would agree that the, the concept behind the Dark Phoenix saga is maybe what's made it so iconic. Uh, I think the first time I read it, well, just like Maya, I had seen The Last Stand as a child and I did love it. So, But we're going to talk about that a bit later. I think I got into reading The Dark Phoenix Saga way too late. It was in preparation for like my first or second Comics West podcast ever. I think it was the second one, but I'm not sure. Which was like two years ago only. And um, I always felt like I was missing out on something because I was like this huge X-Men fan by that time and I hadn't read like the the biggest classic X-Men story ever uh, but it was fun going back and seeing like what the fascination behind this would be and I really liked how um, he introduced some of my favorite characters which are Emma Frost and Kitty Pride along the way and how that is being integrated into the plot I really liked that so what do you think sets this book apart in your opinion and uh, why do you think the, the metaphor, the mutant metaphor works so well in this specific story? Honestly, what I think sets this book apart is the grandiose scale that the Phoenix Force has on the entire X-Men universe and the fact that it just becomes like this huge human story of Jean Grey trying to grapple with this power that she has and whether or not she's able to do it if it's like going to be a destructive force or a useful force and how people around her may be able to alter or change her based on you know how she's feeling at the time and what's weird is that I never really read it with the metaphor in mind maybe with the fact that she can what ultimately happens and she has to be destroyed for having this power which again I have very mixed feelings about and yeah it's just to me it just always was like this really epic tale of like 
very personal character drama, yet with a lot of high stakes and a lot of interesting things going on. Yeah, I I agree. When I read it, I wasn't thinking... I, th- this felt more like a X-Men story than a metaphor. Like how yeah. The, yeah, it felt less like a the mutant metaphor for like inequality. It felt like more of like an inside X-Men story. It kind of reminded me of like the Iliad for comic books. Like just something that was a huge adventure with a lot of characters and a huge like epic to like epic proportions and finale going on you wouldn't you weren't really sure what was going to happen to everyone at the end but like everyone played an important role in the ultimate conclusion no i agree i think that uh in reading or rereading the dark phoenix saga the i would agree that the metaphor isn't even what's in the forefront of the reading experience but for me, like the uh, some of the little scenes kind of bring that metaphor across when we uh, first meet Kitty Pride and we see her and the relationship to her parents and her struggles as like a mutant who's only just uh, discovered her abilities as a teenager. And it's those little moments, I guess, that uh, make the reader emphasize with with like the struggle of being being different and growing up as a teenager. But overall, I think that, I mean, we even got, like, in the interview with Chris Claremont, we even got a lot into what role feminism would play with the character of Jean. And I think that's, uh, I mean, having, like, a really, really strong female character and way stronger than her partner Cyclops, that's, uh, <laughs> yeah, yep. right, by that time. And um, yeah, I think that's what, what set the book apart for me. Would you say that, uh, or do you think that Jean's sacrifice at the ending, and I mean, yes, Mara, I know you, you're not sure about the ending yet, but um, would you say that it seems as selfless now as it did when the story was initially released? Oh, definitely. I mean, it's still, to me, like, I, I don't really, when I read material, I tend not to get quite as emotional as watching it, but those panels and just seeing her, kind of more or less have to like destroy herself for the greater good is a very emotionally poignant moment. You know, no matter who's reading, no matter what context you're reading in, it will forever remain as something that just will really, the reader will just kind of grapple with and appreciate the complexity and emotional weight of. Right. Yeah, I definitely think about that now when um, in the newer comics, young Jean is in them. She's so cute and innocent. Um, And I just, uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it definitely seems as selfless now because I, especially now I'm seeing young Jean and I just like, I don't know, I feel like she had a lot ahead of her. And so her sacrifice, it's it's a big deal. Yeah. So yeah, we already got into uh, the film adaptation or the quasi-adaptation a bit, which was uh, The Last Stand by Brad Redner, which everyone hates. It's everyone's least favorite X-Men movie, I think. I actually still kind of defend that movie, but let's not get into that. So what was your initial response? I know uh, you both saw I think you both saw it as a child, right? I, I didn't. I just, I just skipped it. But I know oh, what okay. happens. Yeah, I, I, just, I just like, nope. Not for me. <laughs> oh, right, right. Yeah, I did see it as a child, so. Is this the one where Wolverine stabs? Her? Yes, it is. Yeah. Yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. Oh, oh. Oh, good Lord. <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah, I think that definitely takes away 
Jean's sacrifice. Um, and it definitely, I don't know, it, it puts the power in someone else, you know. I don't understand the movie's need to constantly have, I mean, this is me going into like my problems with the movies. I don't understand why Wolverine had to do it because she is clearly capable of doing it herself. But I feel like this this kind of brings me to my biggest issue with why Jean, like why the ending is the way it is. And that's sort of like her inability to control a darker force within her as something that consumes her. And reading it, I guess today, or someone who's like trying or is more aware of like feminist readings of it, the idea that a really strong, really smart female character is incapable of being able to control a darker force within her. And then, especially in the movie, having someone else have to take control of that and sort of stop her. That's always been the part that I've had trouble kind of like coming to terms with almost because as much as I really do genuinely like the story, I don't like having to think that that's a big part of it as well. Right. And she also asks him. Yeah. Which like, girl, do it yourself. (laughs) Yeah. No, I absolutely agree. And I think that uh, a lot of the elements that made the original, original comic book so good were just straight up missing from the movie because they were trying to fit into their uh, cinematic uh, universe. Uh, it's not It's not even the cinematic universe at that point. It's more like fitting it into the, the end of the trilogy, I want to say. Because, for instance, the focus shifts away from the Gene Cyclops relationship. I mean, he gets killed off pretty early on in the movie and it's still more about Wolverine than it probably should be in order to be a faithful adaptation of the source material. So I, even though there are a lot of aspects that I do still like about the movie, I would agree that it's a really not good adaptation of the dark Phoenix saga as a comic book. It just, it's really unfortunate because it just completely eradicates the one real, after everything that had happened in the story, it just eradicates the one real sense of power that she had had and it was like her decision to stop the force even if it meant you know she wouldn't be around anymore it's just whatever (laughs) so i'm not salty about it (laughs) (laughs) agreed so any last words on the dark phoenix saga does it seem dated to you is there any criticism you want to add it's a good read check it out (laughs) (laughs) I can live with that, right. So uh, finally, which this book is an absolute favorite of mine, God Loves Man Kills. What was your first contact with God Loves Man Kills and what was your first impression? My first contact was uh, more recently than I'd like to admit. Well, I read it a long time ago when I was, uh, like Mara said before, hunkering down and like trying to get through the canon that is uh, X-Men. Yeah, so it, it was kind of lost in the abyss of like other X-Men stories that I had but um I think this one deals more with a mutant metaphor and I always like when that happens like stories like Dark Phoenix Saga are fun and I like fun X-Men stories but I also enjoy when it's um, approaching the metaphor of um it's approaching the metaphor of mutant kind and inequality because I think if they're not doing that, what makes them any different from Avengers, you know, or Justice League? Like, that's what sets X-Men apart from them. So, Oh, I completely agree with you, Maya. I mean, the metaphor to me, like, 
it's so X-Men and it's just, it's one of the main reasons why I think this is probably one of my favorite superhero teams overall. And so when I first came into contact with this, I, it was weird because I remember kind of avoiding it for a while because it's like, it's one of those things where you know it's really good and you know you will eventually just have to sit down, take maybe an afternoon or however long it takes you to read something and just read the story. And that's that's kind of what I wound up doing. I just, I got the, a copy from it from like the library and I just read read it right through and I really liked it. I'm... It's one of those things where there's just enough symbolism and enough like interesting questions being brought up that you can really just wind up sitting, you know, by yourself, just thinking about what's being said and what these characters are going through. And it just, it, I, I dug it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I agree. I mean, I always knew that this was like one of the big classics I had to check out as an X-Men fan. But when I finally did, I actually got uh, like an English copy for Christmas by my parents, I believe, which was like two or three years ago. And like, after reading that, I was amazed. I was like, there's no way this was released in the 1980s. This could have been released like literally yesterday. And I mean, I feel like this is a really timeless X-Men book as opposed to, well, I'm not saying that the Dark Phoenix Saga is not a timeless classic, but this one I think has aged a, a lot better, at least in my opinion. It, it, it has a really modern, really gritty, realistic feel to it. And I think that's what impressed me the most, but also how this is like the the go-to book to demonstrate how the the mutant metaphor works especially with a lot of the dialogue that uh kitty pride got i don't know if you would agree oh for sure in terms of dating this is like the most nitpicky issue probably that will ever be brought up but i actually remember reading this one panel and seeing like as she was kitty pride was phasing into the ground and looking at her clothes and thinking, wow, that is so 70s. Like, look at those, like, boot jeans. Like, it, the, the dumbest nitpick is, and if the dumbest nitpick for terms of, like, it being dated is the type of clothes that the characters are wearing, which obviously they can't control, like, then you know you've got a story that's going to last for a long time, way even past, like, our millennial generation. And... Oh, absolutely. Oh, the metaphor just works so freaking well here. It's it's crazy. Right, I agree. But yeah, Kitty did have a lot of really bad costumes, so <laughs> he I did. Mean, Poor thing. <laughs> I can see that. Um, but yeah, what set it apart from all the other books for me anyway was the religious angle that they went with Stryker and it was really strange reading it and trying to like see how someone in theory would be supporting like love of your fellow man. How could he allow this to happen? Why is he doing it? And then their choice to even pseudo make him sympathetic with having the whole, like, you know, his family was kind of a, he was an unwitting victim of the mutant metaphor, even though he, he caused the whole problem with his child and wife of Jesus Christ. Um, and the fact that, you know, someone's misunderstanding and frustration with themselves, they would go so far as to try and destroy an, another group is really sad, but also like, yeah, that's, that's what will happen 
ultimately. I mean, that's super relevant today. How many, you know, priests have spoken out against, um, you know, gay marriage or gay rights. And then later there's a scandal that shows up that they've been like, you know, sexually harassing the altar boy. Like, yeah, yeah. And I think it sucks because then it paints this picture of like, Oh, if you're against this cause, you're, if you're against this cause, then you must like secretly be interested by it or a part of it, which I feel like is unfortunate if that's what everyone thinks about that, because then, then it just means that like, uh, then it just means that like, there's a lot of secretly gay homophobic people out there. And, um, that's unfortunate. Um, yeah. Um, Yeah. But it's, it's just sort of like sitting back and. I mean, for, to me, the, the the first few panels where you see the two um, black children being chased by the mob and them ultimately getting, I, I feel bad saying it, but they're ultimately lynched by like these horrible like people and it being because they're mutants without any context, you would just think that it was common violence, like not common, unfortunately common violence against um, black communities in more southern states and even well, let's be honest just all throughout America and the fact that they're able to say no this happens in this universe as well but let's get you thinking about how this violence is happening you know today in our time and how it's affecting everyone it just it is it kind of even blurs the lines between metaphor and just like straight up this is what's happening in your world you should be paying attention Yeah, definitely. I also like what you said about, you know, it's someone who preaches to love all humanity, but makes an exception. And that's definitely a lot of people. They define the term humanity with what they want it to be rather than what it actually is. Um, And, you know, that lets them discriminate. I guess it's just it's overwhelmingly frustrating how many people he got on his side as well. I mean, it's not surprising because you know, people will follow any sort of charismatic leader, no matter what their standing will be. I mean, just look at the current political situation. I was say. Um, but the fact that, like, what I liked about the story is that it does ultimately have a pseudo happy ending. The bad guy gets his comeuffins, and that doesn't always happen here. But the fact that it should, and it does in this instance, means that you know we should try and see like what they do here and how we can really like make people more aware of how their actions could potentially cause harm or do good. I think we're all on the same page when I say that the book is uh, not really that dated, but uh, on the other hand, it's really, I mean, it's really up to date if we take a look at the current political situations. Would you agree? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Is there any criticism we have left from from our millennial perspective? Anything you want to add? This is the one instance where I feel like the metaphor works the best. I mean, no real criticism on my end. Are there any other classic books that you would like to talk about? Any point you would like to add or anything that you feel like you have a unique perspective on? I don't have a unique perspective on it, but Days of Future Past is another one that does the metaphor really well. Oh, definitely. Yeah. That's um, what I was trying to think of. And, I yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> and that is, again, because it's charismatic leaders, cough, cough, current political climate, <laughs> are the ones who are pushing for, you know, mutants to be um, discriminated against. 
And in Days of Future Past, again, they are successful for most of the book. And what makes it interesting is how the changes occur are gradually over time. Like, it doesn't just happen all in one go. There's not one evil person who's just like, I'm going to take over the world and get rid of only mutants, even though they're like less the population, because why not? And, you know, yeah, it starts with like these basic reforms and these basic legislation that gets passed and it seems innocent enough and people don't make a big fuss over it and they just kind of let it slide and then it gets worse and worse people are like oh it doesn't affect me why should i care but the thing is is that it you should care because they're people like right right i think the um yeah i like what you said about it it happens gradually and i could definitely see that now Especially with, like, legislation versus, like, actual violence. Like, obviously, in Days of Futures Past, it gets to, like, extreme violence <laughs> against mutants. But that's, you know, it, that definitely does not happen um, overnight, so. Actually, I was just listening to the other X-Men The Dream podcast we did last year. And I think what I, I, we were all also talking about Days of Future Past. And I think one of us was saying, if you listen to this podcast now from the future, you're probably living in the dystopian future. <laughs> yep. And oh, I was like, shots fired. Yeah, that, that's sad because it's kind of true, right? Yeah, I feel like there's a lot to be said about, about violence and how that's reflected with the current political situation and how... Um, Days of Future Past. I don't want to say predicted that, but got into that definitely. Uh, I think what was interesting for me reading Days of Future Past, uh, I would have brought that up uh, too, is that I think that the the trope of dystopian futures and time travel is a really common trope in superhero comics right now. I mean, it's been kind of overused, in, especially in X-Men comics, but it was fun uh, reading where that trend came from and how it first worked because the, the Xavier metaphor and the Xavier stream could be expanded upon by showing us the ultimate like Xavier's nightmare scenario and giving us this outlook into the future. It's like, this is what we want to avoid. This is how we avoid it. And I think that's what I always like most about X-Men Days of Future Past, even though like some of the dialogue even seems pretty corny from today's perspective i don't know if i'm being too harsh on claremont but no i mean i'm as much as and i do i love myself some ridiculous claremont writing but again it, it is so over the top and so like whoa like the almost theatrical which is weird because again they're like stationary characters but you can still get a lot of the you know over dramatic emotion just from the words that his word choice is just brilliant at times, but again, here it does feel a little bit much. But it's a story that Kitty Pride has a lot of control over. So if you're a fan of Kitty Pride, like I'm sure most of us here are, then it's definitely worth seeing. And also just seeing the gradual progression of like legislation slowly destroying this very niche group of people, I feel it's just, it's too crazy to not try and read. So I feel like there has been a lot of criticism towards recent X-Books from a lot of fans who claim that the material isn't as relatable or effective or even as compelling as it used to be when these classic books were released. And Well, do you think that modern books can hold up in terms of representing the metaphor? If so, what are storylines story that can accomplish that for you? Yeah, I think recent X-Books may not have been as... Um 
so maybe not as obvious with the metaphor. Unfortunately, because uh, things are all about action now. Um, I think people see the X-Men movies, they see the um, other Marvel movies, and it may turn them towards comics uh, to get more of that world, but then they are probably looking for the same things they see in the movies, the action, the characters that they're familiar with. Um, and so I think you can definitely find in recent X books and X comics, the metaphor, I think it's still there, but I think it unfortunately is more subtle now, more nuanced. Um, so I think just for like capitalist reasons, just for like wanting to get more readers and wanting to uh, keep them. For example, like um, uh, in Humans versus X-Men, I actually thought it felt a lot to me of like conversations I've had between people of different minorities, um, you know, and they end up fighting against each other instead of instead of like, I don't want to say the real enemy, but instead of like the real systems that oppress them, they end up getting caught up in like inter-minority politics. I mean, I felt like that, like the Inhumans have been, you know, the Inhumans haven't been given the greatest deal sometimes and neither have the X-Men. Um, and so I feel like recently, just like, like uh, and then there was Avengers versus X-Men, I think like that, like boost sales, like we want to see our, our, you know, teams fighting each other. In reality, I think I think Secret Empire is going to be good um, because it's going to be uh, more teams coming together finally. And I think that also reflects the current climate because now is the time that we really need to all come together. Like our 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 teams, so to speak, our communities need to all come together. Um, you know, stop with the inter-community fighting and really like start working towards uh, ending the real oppressive systems. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. You put that so eloquently. I honestly, my complaints about the most recent books are the same thing. I didn't quite understand. I guess I just, I, cause I was reading, um, death of X and I couldn't quite fully understand. I mean, I understood, I, I understood the basics as to why they were fighting amongst each other, but it seemed to me like they weren't accomplishing anything. They were sort of just going through the motions of this is two superhero teams they're fighting each other, but it felt more like a mandate. And I guess what broke my heart is this one panel at the end of, I believe it was the first or second issue. And it shows how much compassion each team has for the members. Cause there's, you know, there's only a few in humans. There's only so many X-Men and they all really just want to make sure that the people on said teams are being taken care of. And I feel like they would be able to get along really well if they could just see past their own frustrations with each other and, you know, work together. Um, yeah, relating that um, again to current day politics, uh, Mara and I both go to Barnard and uh, it's a very Jewish campus. Um, yeah. And I see a lot of the time there's this rift between Jewish activists and um, activists of color, uh, sometimes with Israel-Palestine politics, sometimes with just regular politics. They're both groups that have obviously been, you know, marginalized. Violence has been used against them time and time again throughout history. And so I feel because of that, um, they're both very protective of just like the X-Men and the Inhumans, like each one of them has gone through a lot of stuff. So they're both protective of their own team. And I think that's what leads to the conflict in Inhumans versus X-Men. Like they see each other as like different sides of a coin because they feel, because of the things that have happened to them, they feel like they need to stick with their own team, which is like what happens when you're oppressed. So like, no, I mean, and that's, that's an 
excellent point. I um, actually, again, at school, I was filming an event for the audiovisual uh, group there. And one of the speakers, she was a um, prominent member of the Black Lives Matter group. And she was explaining the very same thing that Maya was just talking about, this idea of you don't really get to pick who you fight for. You should fight for the cause because it's the right thing to do. Even if it doesn't always feel like these people have your back, and I know that I'm butchering this and I feel so bad, but it's even if these people don't seem to have your back, you need to, you should in theory be doing it because you care for the greater good of humanity. And that's really, I guess, my biggest problem with modern day like X-Men and like these whole X-Men versus inhuman things is that they all want the greater good for their team and for, right. you know, these my, like smaller like groups who are like genetically based yet they don't see that they're clearly fighting the same fight. Right. I also like that secret empire is about fighting Hydra. Yeah, I believe. And Hydra is Nazis. They're Nazis. And like there's no excuse, in America, yeah. there's uh, right. there's a bunch of Nazis. Yeah. Right now. Oh, like, Nazis. Oh. Right. So, uh, yeah, that's, um, that's um, sad. <laughs> so yes. Yeah, but those were great points that you brought up. And we're actually going to get into the Inhumans vs. X-Men discussion on the next part of the podcast with all the others, like on the big podcast. So, um, yeah, I mean, this is all very interesting because I was wondering if you think that uh, today's political climate and landscape have like kind of changed the way that we look at the Xavier stream versus Magneto stream. Because I know it did that for me, especially with the Trump election. But what do you think? Yeah, I know, uh, just to give a personal take, so um, I'm black and I'm part of a lot of black activism. And yeah, the, we in that community, there's a lot of Xavier's dream versus Magneto's dream rhetoric, um, which, you know, a lot of people have said is the, it's a mirror towards Malcolm X and um, Martin Luther King. And I also think just like, just like how in the movies, Magneto, at least I feel, is far more villainized than he should be. Um, uh, yeah, especially in the comics, I feel like he's more nuanced. He, you know, sure, he's more uh, violent than Xavier, but he's not, like, a straight villain as the first, at least the first trilogy um, presents him. Uh, and just like there's a lot of more radical things that Martin Luther King said that we never, that's never talked about because he's painted as a peaceful leader. And towards the end of his life, Malcolm X was uh, very seriously considering moving towards a more peaceful solution, Um which also isn't talked about because uh, I feel like in the media and in our history books, we need this dichotomy of, you know, good and evil or violent and peaceful. Like there are only two ways to solve a problem and, you know, here are your choices. Yeah. So I feel like if anything now, I feel like with Secret Empire, it would be good to uh, it would be good to see a more nuanced look at Xavier Magneto's dream. Um you know, just with like, oh, you know, maybe these people aren't like complete opposites. Maybe they have more nuance between them and can uh, connect. I guess my real, not even frustration, but my real question to it is why there has, like, as you were saying, why there has to be this dichotomy? Because they, they're both fighting for the right for mutant kind to exist and to exist among people. Granted, especially early Magneto was a lot more, uh, let's just say, pushy with his with his perspectives um whereas Xavier wanted people to just you know accept over time but I mean as we have seen time and time again with Xavier's 
actions and the way the X-Men have been treated, his way of doing things hasn't always worked. And in Magneto's, I mean, as I guess collateral damage goes, it's not ideal, but he, he does get stuff done. And I honestly wouldn't argue for one side for, or the other, because in a perfect world, in a perfect world, you can have this sort of peaceful way of just educating people, of making people understand that no matter who you are, you'll always be like a person. You know, a person's a person, no matter how small. Like, I guess they never read Dr. Seuss. And it just, especially with like the Trump election and people like this sheer like outrage and frustration that people have felt, you know, racial tensions and like the white supremacy that's risen or has become a lot more prominent today it just it feels like as much as i would personally really like for xavier the whole peaceful like just teaching people what to do it feels a lot harder to get right um yeah i feel uh this rhetoric i see a lot nowadays is like we need to talk to the other side like um you know we're so the left and the right are so opposed that we can't get ideas across and i totally and that's more xavier's think that's more xavier's thinking uh you know he would sit down and have a talk with like striker you know um Whereas I feel like for me, at least it's very hard to talk to the other side when I feel this rhetorical violence from them, Um, especially today. Like Trump has said very like violent things about many groups of people. It's hard to like reach to bridge that gap. I think that's what the Trump election has really changed for me. Like when the president of your entire country is saying these things, it's not just like some lone wolf in the KKK. It's very difficult to bridge the gap to go Xavier's way when it feels so personal, so harmful. It feels like, no, I need to do the Magneto thing right now. And like, I don't know, do something crazy. But just to shed some light on Xavier's dream, while it does definitely feel so difficult to obtain, I believe, I remember, I think I learned this in American politics last semester. So just drawing from all the college classes, this is where your money's going to mom. Um, uh, for for purely X-Men stuff, um, is that when you can educate one person and it very much so is when you're able to go door to door and talk to one person one-on-one individually about a topic that you've been able to have personal experience with i know that i think they ran a test and i i wouldn't quote me on this but i think they were running a test on like transgendered rights and on you know like the whole transgendered bathroom thing and when they were talking to someone who was a transgendered individual they were able to talk in a more personal space one-on-one and learn more about the issue that they hadn't already been otherwise this is a person who may not have been for having the bath like who may have been for having the bathroom bills be passed and when they talked to someone who was transgendered they started to learn more about the nuances that the individual went through and gained more of an appreciation for it and were more likely to vote against like the bathroom bills right i definitely agree i just think that not everyone is capable of that like for me i would find it really hard to go to like someone's house you know someone who was so vehemently against me having rights just me personally that's why i feel i like how in the x-men there's you know people on magneto's side and people on xavier's side like some people you know during the revolution may it be like violent or intellectual you know, some people can handle that. Some people can like go and speak to people who like have these intense biases about them. And some people like me are just like, nah, I can't like, I get too upset, you know? And and that's, that's totally a reasonable thing to be feeling. I mean, Jesus Christ. 
I agree. And I remember that after the Trump election, I feel like the, the way I perceived Magneto and Xavier really changed because I, I still remember I was actually reading uh, Hair by Malcolm X on the day that Trump was elected uh, for school. And I think that's something that really changed my understanding of the political situation in this case because it's like uh, before when I was starting to get into X-Men, I had this really, I was really standing behind the, the Xavier approach. And I was like, I really had this naive understanding almost of how political discourse works. And I was like, why can't we all just be nice? And, uh, you know, why can't we all just be nice and tolerating each other? And yeah, I mean, after the Trump election and uh, going back and getting into a lot of more comics, even about the, the mutant revolution by Cyclops, I feel like I see things a bit more nuanced. So, I mean, do you think that in in some cases the metaphor has like changed or even progressed in the way it's being represented in the X books uh, because because there's this like uh, more put political context to it? Uh, because I I was thinking of the well, as I said, the the books about Cyclops's uh, mutant revolution, but also maybe the the refugee uh, experience in the Inhuman War. I guess what my big takeaway is, and I guess for the way the books are now, what I personally would like to see as a reader um, is as much as I do love like the metaphor, I would like to see it to be less of, I guess, less of a metaphor and more of like having actual characters who have gone through you know, very real experiences that are going on, like more people of color, more people with like a wider range of like sexual identities and stuff. People who are very much so realistically being oppressed today and put them in the comics and put them in the context of being mutants just so that way, as much as the metaphor is great and I will forever like be trumpeting X-Men for being amazing in that sense, I feel like it would have a lot more poignancy and it would mean a lot more if there was like actual representation in both like more representation in the characters as well as the people writing it just because you can be very sympathetic and you can be very aware of the issues at hand. But I mean, I know personally, I can't understand a lot of the oppression that goes on because I just have never had that life experience before. To you or to us as young readers, what do you think is more appealing, the classics or the recent X-Books? I'm so much about aesthetic um, and like art and I really like uh, digital art. So like, unfortunately for me, I love the newer X-Men just because I like the art style in it a lot. I I like, um, I also like the more, I like uh, the more diversity in it. Um, I feel like perhaps the metaphor is getting lost a little bit, but I, representation is big for me and I really like seeing that in, um, in the newer X-Men I'm kind of sort of in between. I I guess if you really want to see good examples of the metaphor, you should go for the classics. But if you want to actually see the metaphor more in use, you should look at the more recent stuff. Do you have any last thoughts that you would want to share with our listeners? Yeah, I just want to say a lot of the things that we like as nerds <laughs> like to enjoy are based off of real struggles like, you know, Star Wars with imperialism um, and colonialism, you know, X-Men with oppression, um, you know, even Harry Potter with like the rise of fascism. Um, and I just feel like it's important for you to realize that, you know, they're based on something real. They're not just uh, they're not just uh, they're not just coming from nowhere. So, yeah, it's important to, you know, learn about the things that 
all the things that we love are based on. I completely agree with Maya here. And just also like stay critical of the things that you read. A lot of the X-Men stuff that we talked about today, just noticing that, you know, who's like writing what and what like the characters represent and what they mean and kind of like who they are as people. Understanding that there's so many stories that can be told of so many people who have experienced stuff like this in real life, as Maya was saying, that it's always good to be aware and to just sort of like maybe give a shout and be like, hey, maybe we should do something about this oppression instead of just reading about it in comics. Both were great last words. I couldn't have said it better. Uh, nothing to add. Absolutely. All right. So thank you for listening. Make sure to check out part one on and three of this series. And as I said, don't forget to check us out at comicsverse.com. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> <laughs>